Blessings of the Chupujem, Terawan Saranai. Today we are continuing with our series on profitable perceptions, which is based on the Buddha's teaching in the Dutya Sanya Sutta. So again, this is Nikaya chapter 7, discourse number 49, and also based on Raga Payala, which is the last few suttas at the end of chapter 7. In today's Dhamma session, we're looking at the perception of repulsiveness of food, or in Pali, this is Ahara, Patikula Sanya, and it's a profitable perception. Let's begin by paying homage to the Triple Gem. We can bow our heads in Anjali. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dhamma, and homage to the Noble Sangha. As we highlighted in our introductory session, we will examine each of the profitable perceptions, and this is to clarify the Buddha's instructions and their meaning, and also to understand what they overcome, and how we can develop each one referencing other teachings of the Buddha where needed. And then, in a final session, we will consolidate them so we can contemplate all seven profitable perceptions as one single meditation or contemplation. As the Buddha has said in the Dutya Sanya Sutta, because these seven perceptions, when developed and cultivated, are of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as their consummation. And as per the Raga Payala, which is Nikaya chapter 7, discourses 615 through to uh, 1124, these abbreviated texts at the end of chapter 7 of Nikaya. Help us to develop these seven things, and they say that they help us to gain direct knowledge of lust or greed, and much, much more. In this session, we'll be focusing on the perception of repulsiveness of food, and this helps the mind to shrink away from craving for taste, so rasatanhaya. The primary part of understanding why this profitable perception is important has to do with understanding the physical nutriment, similar to what we have looked at with the profitable perception of unattractiveness, or subhasanya. In that session, we focused on being able to correct the perversion of seeing attractive in the unattractive or fair in the foul, particularly in relation to the body. And if you consider our strongest cravings or attachments, it always comes back to physical bodies, our own or others, and also food. And we can also acknowledge that our body can be food for other living beings. For example, we can be eaten by sharks, lions, and other predators. If we keep cultivating the wrong perceptions, then we take delight, welcome, and remain holding, meaning we remain bound to sansara and this whole mess of suffering. So when it comes to the physical nutriment, another translation for it, this coupling karahara, is also edible food. So if you recall, repulsiveness of food is one of the five contemplations when we develop the first doorway to nibbana, or painful practice with slow realization, dukkapatipada, dandabhinya in Pali. Let's now deep dive into what the Buddha has said about the perception of repulsiveness of food, this Ahara Patikula Sanya. And in the Dutya Sanya Sutta, it goes, it was said, perception of the repulsiveness of food, because when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having deathless as its consummation. For what reason was this said? When a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of the repulsiveness of food, his mind shrinks away from craving for taste. 
turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it, and either equanimity or revulsion becomes settled in him, just as a cock's feather or a strip of sinew thrown into a fire shrinks away from it, turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it. So it is in regard to cravings for taste, when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of the repulsiveness of food. This profitable perception of repulsiveness of food is not how we usually perceive edible food. We usually dwell in the enjoyment of food, perpetuate the perception of unrepulsiveness of food, so hare apatikulasanya, which means we knowingly and unknowingly cover up the true nature of food. Instead of seeing it as a suba, so unattractive, we perceive it as suba, attractive, so fair instead of foul. If we simply look at how much the world tends to focus on food, the recipes, the flavours, the ingredients, the decoration, and then the programming throughout the different forms of media, such as food shows or food segments, documentaries, food articles, what is posted on social media and how much we talk about food, about where we go to enjoy it, how we glorify it, make our evaluations about what is superior, and then justifying certain preferences and more. What this shows is the extent of how much we crave taste. So sensual desire arises and increases, and for this reason there is no equanimity or understanding of the true nature of food, and therefore no repulsiveness towards food. If we never develop the perception of repulsiveness of food, then our mind is constantly distracted and troubled by craving for taste. Sensual desire will remain a major block, and knowing unknowingly we would see rebirth, in the central realm is something that is about to come to pass at the point of death with the breakup of the body. So the key point the Buddha has made is to reinforce the development of the perception of repulsiveness of food so that our mind shrinks away from craving for taste, similar to the simile of the cock's feather or strip of sinew thrown into a fire. And as a result, we would be able to develop equanimity towards food, leading us towards Nibbana, the deathless. If you remember in part two of this profitable perception series, we looked at the perception of unattractive or foulness, asubhasanya. We highlighted the first unprofitable direction, which begins with the physical nutriment, linkara hara. So this is the left-hand side on this slide. And because we have the perversion of attractive in the unattractive or fair in the foul, sensual desire increases and expands because there is attachment or craving towards the physical nutriment or form. So this leads us to go in the wrong way due to desire, so chanda agati gamana, which is associated with the greed pathway. We know the first doorway to nibbana, or first profitable direction, and so that begins with painful practice with slow realization, so dukkha danda binya, so this is on the right-hand column. This is the medicine for the first unprofitable direction, and therefore it is associated with the non-greed pathway. In the Asuba Sutta, so Anguttu Nikaya chapter 4, discourse number 163 that we've brought up before, the Buddha stated that painful practice with slow realization means we dwell contemplating either the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving repulsiveness of food, perceiving non-delight in the entire world, contemplating impermanence in all conditioned phenomena. And we have the perception of death well established internally. So in our previous sessions, we looked at developing and cultivating the perception of unattractiveness or foulness, so asubhasanya, 
And this was to overcome the perception of attractiveness or beauty, the subhasanya, and then the perception of death to overcome intoxication with life. So marana sanya to overcome jivita mother or, yeah, jivita mother, the intoxication with life. Similarly, the perception of repulsiveness of food helps us to overcome craving for taste. So rasatanhaya. These profitable perceptions help us to overcome the escalation of sensual desire that is part of the greed part. If we then contemplate the arising and passing away phenomena, as we've been through many times in the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, this helps us to understand our collective predicament. This is the bigger picture. And if we misapprehend and continue to crave, then we keep activating dependent origination. The perception of repulsiveness of food is important because it means we are able to penetrate the arising and passing away phenomena and see at least one link in dependent origination, that if we are reborn, then we are subject to aging and death and this whole mess of suffering. Here, it is important to see how attached we are to food. And this is at a fundamental level because we have birthed this kind of body. But we also add to that by craving taste. We measure and evaluate according to our preferences, meaning we become even more bound to food or the physical nutriment. Even when we die, though the physical body has passed away, we may still think we are hungry or try to run the same habitual tendency regarding food. This is how we trigger dependent origination, like we've highlighted in our metta meditation based on the Karaniya Metta Sutta, so loving-kindness meditation, if we have the wrong view, we would think it's good to eat and indulge in food, not seeing the true nature of food. What this means is we are saying, I need another eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind to fulfill any craving for taste. Because I take delight, welcome or express and remain holding to food. So this is how we trigger dependent origination. If we see this clearly in our meditation, then we don't take delight, we don't welcome or express, and we don't remain holding, meaning delight ceases. If there is no delight, clinging ceases. And then coming to existence ceases, naturally birth ceases, and aging and death ceases, and of course suffering ceases. So how do we develop and cultivate this perception of repulsiveness of food? There are a number of different ways to do this contemplation. We have actually outlined some of these when we looked at the first doorway to Nibbana. And we can go through these again as a way to refresh and revise for those who have already practiced this before or for those who haven't contemplated the repulsiveness of food before as something new to learn and understand. An important reminder before we go further is that these contemplations should be done as part of meditation or development of the mind. So as the Buddha would say, when we allocate time for this, after having fulfilled our duties and responsibilities, then this is the appropriate time to undertake these meditations. When lay people ask whether they should be doing this kind of contemplation while they are eating or entertaining with family and friends, the answer is no. That is not an appropriate time to do these contemplations because it would immediately turn us away from eating our meals and cause issues with being with others while eating. However, over time, when this meditation is cultivated and developed, it will have an impact on our attitude and choices regarding food. The important thing is not to create unnecessary issues in daily life by trying to get ahead of ourselves or to feel guilty. The more wisdom and insight we gain from our formal meditation, 
the more it will naturally flow into daily life without us having to force something before we are ready or create problems where there doesn't have to be. So the first contemplation that we can do is to look at or contemplate that if we have left out a plate of food for a day, three days, maybe left it out for five days or more, and that plate of food is not covered but exposed to the elements, to insects and so forth, we ask ourselves, what would happen to that plate of food? And when we contemplate, we would see the food would decay, it would become discolored, maybe start to develop mold, maybe start to break down. And while exposed insects such as ants, flies, cockroaches and more would come to feed on that plate of food. So then we ask ourselves, would we want to eat that plate of food? And the answer is no, we wouldn't. Most of us would only want freshly made food or food that had been covered or preserved in the fridge in a safe manner. In other words, if it had visible signs of decay, mold or insects all over it, we would say no, no thanks, yuck. The Buddha would say this is the correct way of perceiving food. Remember, the Buddha is encouraging us to not take delight, welcome or express, and not to remain holding. So when we contemplate the plate of food that has been left out for days, in our mind we would not take delight, not welcome or express, and not remain holding. So nabhinandati, nabhiwadati, nadrosayatitati in Pali, which means there's no craving for taste. So if there's no craving for taste, then there's no delight that arises. And so with that, we start to break the link independent origination. So this is one method of contemplation. Another way to contemplate is to reflect on food waste or the food remnants we throw away. We either put it to the compost bin or to the rubbish bin and put it out for a rubbish collection. If we ask ourselves, will we eat that? Is there any craving for that food waste? And our answer would be no. Now, sometimes people think about people we know or have heard about, such as the homeless, who go diving into rubbish bins to find food. With this kind of example, it's good to reflect that a homeless person may not have a choice about that, so they're not craving taste per se, but looking for nourishment. And those that choose to go diving for food waste for other reasons may do so only seeking food waste that is still packaged and thrown out by businesses or has visible signs of non-decay. So the food that has been thrown out rather than donated, but is still consumable, waste not, want not sort of thing. Again, that's for different reasons. So it's good to ensure we don't block or try to find reasons to block the true nature of food as the Buddha is teaching us. So again, with this second method, if we're doing it correctly, then the outcome would be we would not take delight, we would not welcome, and we would not remain holding which means there's no craving for taste, no delight arises, therefore there's no clinging. If there's no clinging, then we don't want to come to exist for that food. And also, thus there would be the cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, there's the cessation of aging and death, and therefore the cessation of suffering. So you can see that we're breaking or not activating the pen origination. A third way of doing contemplation is to look at an example that we used when we looked at the first awaited nibbana, painful practices with slow realization, that Dhamma session. In that Dhamma session, we contemplated undigested food, which we can also call regurgitated food or, or vomit when it comes back out. If you remember from our examination of the perception of attractiveness of the body or uh, one of the 32 body parts is 
or unattractiveness of the body, sorry, we looked at the contents of the stomach, which is also known as undigested food. So this is where we see the connection between unattractiveness of the body and repulsiveness of food. When we do the following contemplation, it enables us to contemplate both unprofitable perceptions. So what do we do? In our contemplation, we take the contents of the stomach or undigested food and imagine that it has been regurgitated. Imagine that we vomited. It could be because of feeling unwell after a bad meal or if we, for example, have a baby who has trouble digesting food and spits some of it out, vomits it out. In any case, we need to contemplate the foulness or repulsiveness of undigested food that we may originally have consumed as tasty. Through each of the sense faculties, we contemplate, okay, with the eye, when we see regurgitated food, things that have been in our stomach, it's a combination of bile, acid, food remnants in different states of being broken down, saliva and so forth. And with the eye, we reject it as repulsive. So it's not something we would take as pleasing to the eye. And then when it comes to the ear, when we hear about a story from somebody else that they have vomited or there's been regurgitation, even if we don't see it, but we hear the story, there is rejection in our mind. So we don't want to hear about it. And then when it comes to the nose, if we were to smell it, say somebody vomited on the bus or something, we'd probably throw up at even the idea of it or the smell of it. Again, we reject it. And then when it comes to the tongue, if we were asked to taste it or we tasted it by accident, we'd probably throw up at the idea of it, let alone if we had to taste it. So it's rejected again. And then when it comes to the body, we would not be happy if someone asked us to clean it up. We don't want to touch it. We consider it to be unclean and foul. So this is the true nature that we're actually experiencing. And then with the mind, as a result of the other five sense faculties rejecting it, the mind also strongly rejects it as disgusting, repulsive. We're seeing the true nature of food. So we've contemplated this externally and have seen that it's unclean, repulsive, foul. It's not pure. Otherwise, through our five senses, we would have had a different response. And that is not the case. If we now consider it internally as part of the digestive process, we see that undigested food, so the contents of our stomach, when it's broken down, part of it is turned into fluid, our blood that flows to all parts of the body, and another part is expelled as waste from different parts of the body. The food we consume as yummy or delicious, it gets processed through our digestive system and it's transformed. And so a large part of that is waste. When we can see that we are literally walking toilets, any discharge from our body, remember the nine holes we contemplated as part of the Gandha Sutta, this was Angutunikaya chapter 9, discourse number 15, is due to that food. So the part that is waste is straightforward. We can see that it's impure and repulsive when excreted from the body, from any of those nine holes. And the part that is blood that is absorbed throughout the body, if we can see how we react when we see or come into contact with blood, whether we have to handle it, whether it, is the, whether it is women during menstruation or when a baby is born and covered in blood and other kind of things, or if it's a sports injury or some kind of accident and there's blood, or if we've experienced the smell of blood, then we're seeing the true nature, which is really foul and repulsive. So when we see it externally, internally, and both internally and externally in this correct way as repulsive, then we do not take delight do not welcome or express and do not remain holding, which means 
with this profitable perception, there's no craving for taste. So no delight arises and the rest of dependent origination ceases. What we have been contemplating all lines up with seeing the true nature of food in order to overcome craving for taste. When we say food, we know that it is physical nutriment or coupling kara, hara and pali. And as we said before, this is linked to the greed part. The main discourse where the Buddha expounds on the physical nutriment, also sometimes called edible food, is called the Puttamansa Sutta. So this is Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 12, discourse number 63. So if you've been through our series on the four nutriments, you would have seen about this discourse. And it has other similes for the other three kinds of nutriments. So this is known as the discourse on the sun's flesh. And the whole sutta looks at each of the four nutriments. Now, if we contemplate the Buddha's teaching in this sutta, it is another way to cultivate and develop the profitable perception of repulsiveness of food and certain aspects that we need to overcome in order to do that. Now, I didn't start with this sutta because most people find the simile given by the Buddha quite jarring, quite confronting, and quite distasteful. However, if we can see why the Buddha has used this particular simile as a method for us to learn this noble Dhamma, then it can be invaluable. So in the part that goes through the, the, the simile for physical nutriment, it says, and how because should the physical nutriment or edible food be seen? Suppose a couple, husband and wife, have taken limited provisions and were traveling through a desert. They have with them their only son, dear and beloved. Then in the middle of the desert, their limited provisions would be used up and exhausted, while the rest of the desert remain to be crossed. The husband and wife would think our limited provisions have been used up and exhausted while the rest of this desert remains to be crossed. Let us kill our only son, dear and beloved, and prepare dried and spiced meat. By eating our son's flesh, we can cross the rest of this desert. Let not all three of us perish. Then the bhikkhus, then bhikkhus, the husband and wife, would kill their only son, dear and beloved, prepare dried and spiced meat, and by eating their son's flesh, they would cross the rest of the desert. While they are eating their son's flesh, they would beat their breasts and cry, Where are you, our only son? Where are you, our only son? Then the Buddha asks, What do you think, bhikkhus? Would they eat that food for amusement or for enjoyment or for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness? And the bhikkhus answer, No, venerable sir. And then the Buddha asks, Would, Wouldn't they eat that food only for the sake of crossing the desert? And the answer was, Yes, venerable sir. So the Buddha then says, it is in such a way because that I say that the nutriment edible food or physical nutriment should be seen. When the nutriment edible food or physical nutriment is fully understood, lust for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood. When lust for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood, there is no fetter bound by which a noble disciple might come back to this world. So this is a very powerful simile given by the Buddha. The question or phrase that the Buddha highlights, which is important here, and in Pali it is apinute davayava ahara aharayam, madayava ahara aharayam, mandanayava ahara aharayam, vipusanayava ahara aharayamti, which translates as would they eat that food for amusement or for enjoyment, for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness? 
So the four Pali words that are key here to extract and contemplate are Devaya, and this here has been translated as amusement, but it can also be translated as for fun or play. Madaya is the second word. It's been translated as enjoyment. It could also be indulgence or intoxication. The third Pali word is Mandanaya, which has been translated here as for the sake of physical beauty. It can also be translated as for putting on bulk, also adornment. And the last Pali word is Vipusanaya, which has been translated as for attractiveness, but it can also be translated as decoration or beautification. If we think about how we may currently or in the past talk about food, then it's evident that our attitude around food is for amusement, indulgence, intoxication, maybe even to put on bulk or even the opposite of associated with losing weight and very concerned about our appearance. And we place a great deal of emphasis on the way our food is sourced, prepared, the types of cuisines, how we present and decorate our meals and how appetizing it looks and so on. These days, people and businesses are constantly posting food to social media. So we can see all these things have a direct impact on how we crave for taste, how we crave for food. Our sensual desire increases. And as we had previously discussed with the Sekh Paripada Sutta, so this is part of the trainee's motor practice. One of the key things there is about moderation in eating. In Pali, this is known as Borjane Matanyu. And as Venerable Ananda has taught in that discourse, if we understand the physical nutriment correctly, then similar to the Buddha's teaching in the Putamansa Sutta, the disciple of the noble ones, considering it appropriately or wisely, takes his food not for amusement or fun, so never devaya, nor for enjoyment or intoxication, namadaya, nor for the sake of physical beauty or beautification or for putting on bulk, so na mandanaya, nor for attractiveness or decoration, na vipusanaya, but simply for the survival or endurance and continuance of this body, for ending its afflictions or discomfort, for the support of the spiritual life, thinking, I will destroy old feelings of hunger and not create new feelings of greed. Thus, I will maintain myself, be blameless and live in comfort. So by training in accordance with the Buddha's teachings, our intention towards food becomes more supportive towards the spiritual path. And this can only come with wisdom and insight into the physical nutriment, into our understanding of food, the true nature of food, and knowing we must not take delight must not express or welcome and must not remain holding so we don't activate dependent origination and come back to another birth for the sake of craving for taste, craving for food. Otherwise, there's no end in suffering. If we never see the merit in training this way, if we're blocked from uplifting this profitable perception of repulsiveness of food and understanding this simile of the sun's flesh, then there is real danger for us, particularly at the point of death. The desire to create another eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind in order to satisfy our central cravings would be very, very strong because it's to the point of being automatic. That is our habitual tendency. So if we haven't trained it to be anything otherwise, then we can expect it to unfold as we would normally do. And if we understand the suffering that comes with birth, aging, sickness and death, then it's important to see the significance and benefit of developing the profitable perception of repulsiveness of food. So if we were to contemplate this simile of the parents crossing the desert with their beloved only son, 
and understand how they ate. Not for fun, not for enjoyment or intoxication, not for bulking, not for beautification. Then we start to develop insight on the proper attitude and intention towards food. As this develops, we start to recognize there is benefit in refraining from glorifying food or the food experiences. This doesn't mean we don't eat good nourishing food if we can afford it, nor does it mean we should feel guilty around food. But what it does mean is that we start to understand how food is associated with both form, so the physical nutriment, and feeling that we get from the food or the form. All of us expect pleasurable feeling from eating food. Therefore, that is why we eat. And we have very strong attachment to recreating that pleasurable feeling. So we start to understand that. When we take delight in different kinds of food or tastes, having taken the perception of attractiveness, subasanya, or if you remember what was stated in Pedakopadesa, how we delight in the colour, shape or appearance, with food we certainly get drawn in by this, a suba, and that covers up the true nature of a suba. Then we usually express it, oh, wasn't that dish at that cafe or restaurant so fantastic or wasn't that person's cooking at home so wow? Or did you see the way that they decorated the cake or the pastries at that bakery? Or wasn't the food so amazing? And didn't they use this and that spice? And oh, wow. And so on and so forth. So by verbalizing or expressing about food, we are constantly lifting up the unprofitable perception. And we don't realize that. And in many ways, we're embedding that into our mind and into other people's mind. And we're also increasing the amount of defilements, mental stains. And so what happens is we want to have it again. So we make plans to go there again, and that's how we remain holding. So it's good to tread quite carefully and rein back how we talk about food, and that's something that arises when we start to practice properly. And so what we want to do is not to con continuously arouse and sustain wrong perceptions around food. And so as the Buddha has said in the Atiraga Sutta, so this is the one that comes after the Puttamansa Sutta, so Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 12, discourse number 64. And this is something that we've reminded throughout this particular series, but in relation to the physical nutriment, it says, if because there is lust for the physical nutriment or edible food, if there is delight, if there is craving, consciousness becomes established there and comes to growth. So this is referring to dependent origination. Wherever consciousness becomes established and comes to growth, there is a descent of name and form. So Nama Rupa. Where there is a descent of name and form, there is growth in volitional formations, so Sankaras. So we start to construct. Where there is the growth of volitional formations, there is the production of future renewed existence. Where there is the production of future renewed existence, there is future birth, aging, and death. Where there is future birth, aging, and death, I say that is accompanied by sorrow, anguish, and despair, and the whole mass of suffering. So you can see it becomes very important in our meditation to cultivate and develop a profitable perception, which is the repulsiveness of food. So we can then contemplate the arising and passing way of form and feeling. When we do this in accordance with the Buddha's instructions in the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, then as a result, we would heavily lean towards the cessation of suffering. We are reminding ourselves of the teacher Samupada, which is dependent origination. If we don't have the perception of repulsiveness of food properly established, then of course what happens is we keep taking delight, welcoming, and remain holding to both forms, so the actual food, 
We crave the food and we also crave the feeling that comes from when we experience the food. So because of craving, there is delight, clinging, existence, birth, aging, death, and this whole mass of suffering. We're not seeing the true nature. We're not seeing it clearly. We're not seeing that it leads to suffering. So we really need to penetrate this, the arising phenomena. Now, if we correctly develop the perception of repulsion of food, then we don't take delight, we don't welcome and don't remain holding to form and feeling because we understand that it only leads to suffering. There is no delight, meaning we cut off clinging, existence, birth, aging and death, and there's the cessation of suffering. So it's very powerful stuff to see the bigger predicament. Now, a lot of people ask the question about what's a skillful way to train while actually eating. So the encouragement is to train by eating with gratitude. So it's not good to do this kind of contemplation about repulsiveness of food while we're eating, as we said at the start. But while we're actually eating, particularly for lay people, it's good to eat with gratitude. And as we went through earlier, what we're saying really here is that we need to set aside time for meditation to actually do these meditations. That's when we do this kind of contemplation. But while we're eating or entertaining and that sort of thing, it's better to have gratitude to everyone that has been part of the process of how the food has come to the table. So the entire food system, the soil, seeds, insects, and now the way that our food has been grown, farmed, transported, distributed, how it gets into the shops for us to buy, the people who work in the whole food chain, then how it gets to our house, how we prepare our food, who prepares it, how we store it, and so on. So we are entirely dependent on each part of that process. And so while we eat, or even before we eat, to actually reflect on that and reflect on that with gratitude means we're less indebted because we acknowledge this entire food chain. Now, the perception of repulsiveness of food is also one of the hardest to contemplate because of the way we are conditioned in this life, particularly towards food, as well as it's one of the main reasons why we have taken birth in the sensual realm. So what blocks us from doing this kind of meditation or even inclining towards this kind of meditation is the fear of taking away pleasurable feeling that we associate with food. For most of us, food is or has been something that gives us pleasurable feeling and we use it to celebrate, to commiserate when we're sad or to re recreate that feeling over and over again. Now, if one were to develop the perception of repulsiveness of food very well, then what we do is we overcome craving for taste, as what Buddha has said in this Dutya Sanya Sutta. So a person who has cultivated this really well would not eat to recreate the feeling, but they would eat primarily to nourish the body, to sustain the body, to overcome discomfort, such as when we're hungry, and to support the spiritual life. And if there's any liberation when we develop this in meditation, so vimutti, then in the meditation, a person would transcend both form and feeling. Okay, so let's go back to the Dutya Sanya Sutta again. And the Buddha continues by saying, if when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of repulsiveness of food, his mind inclines to craving for taste, or if he does not turn away from them, he should understand I have not developed the perception of the repulsiveness of food. 
There is no distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. I have not attained the fruit of development. Thus he clearly comprehends this. What the Buddha stated here is, as we said with the other ones, it's a check for whether we have developed our perception correctly. So in this case, the perception of the repulsiveness of food. Here he said, if we've done our meditations, in the case of the ones that we went through, we pick one of our meditation objects. So it could be contemplating a food that, later food that has been left out for days, or we contemplate food waste, or we contemplate undigested food, or even we contemplate this simile of the sun's flesh. And if our mind inclines to craving for taste, like it still inclines towards it, glorifies it, indulges in it, and it doesn't turn away from it, then we should understand that we haven't developed the perception of repulsiveness of food correctly, or the way that we've contemplated or applied the Dhamma is still wrong. And this is because we can see there's no difference in the mind before and after our meditation or contemplation. So there's no fruit of development. If that is the case, then it's good to go back and review where we went wrong. Sometimes what happens is we may think we are developing this perception of the repulsiveness of food, but yet we might still be thinking about the unrepulsiveness. So we, we think that it, food is yummy, tasty, wow, that there's no problem with maintaining the wrong perception. Or we may be meditating and we rec recollect some favorite food place eatery that we've been before or a particular dish or something. And we can't go past that construction or the story in our mind. And so the craving for taste is active. But whatever the case may be, it's important to correct any flaws in our contemplation because we know that there can be no fruit of development if we allow the unprofitable perception to still be there. And this is a very important point when we meditate or develop the mind. We need to ensure that we uplift the mind. And being able to diagnose this is, is very skillful. And then the Buddha has said, but if when he often dwells with the mind accustomed to the perception of the repulsiveness of food, his mind shrinks away from the craving for taste and either equanimity or revulsion becomes settled in him, he should understand I've developed the perception of the repulsiveness of food. There is a distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. I've attained the fruit of development. Thus, he clearly comprehends this. So in contrast to the previous one we went through, after contemplating, if we find that our mind shrinks away from craving for taste, that it's not drawn towards it, and either equanimity or revulsion settles in us, then we understand that we have actually developed this perception of the repulsiveness of food correctly or properly because there is a distinction. We have fruit of development. So if we're able to develop and cultivate the perception thoroughly without veering away from it and we remain very uh, mindful and vigilant, so there's wisdom or insight, then what we will see is that our mind can expand, become very vast. And there is a very apparent contrast. Often with our earlier condition, prior to correctly developing the perception of repulsiveness of food, we're still very much conditioned towards taste and tasty food. And the mind does not get expanded and it clearly lacks wisdom. But if we have attained fruit of development, then we're happy to know we have developed this well. So when it was said, the perception of the repulsiveness of food because when developed and cultivated, it's of great fruit and benefit culminating in the deathless, having deathless as its consummation. It is because of this that this was said. 
And so the Buddha has confirmed that it's a, it becomes that the deathless becomes our final goal and accomplishment. And also in the Asavakaya Sutta, this is on Nikaya chapter 5, discourse number 70, it says it will lead to the destruction of the team. So why has the Buddha said this? As we highlighted earlier, when we have developed and cultivated this perception of repulsiveness of food correctly, this means we have understood both form and feeling. In this samsaric predicament, if there's any craving, conditioned by form or, or feeling, it can only result in birth, aging and death and this whole mess of suffering. But if we have developed the perception of repulsiveness of food thoroughly, then what we understand is the arising and passing away phenomena. We don't want to have any craving or attachment for, for taste. We would shrink away from it, turn away from it, roll away from it, as the Buddha has said, and not be drawn to it. In other words, we're training towards not activating dependent origination. And so with the breakup of the body after death, we would be able to uplift the mind to the perception of this repulsiveness of food. So we don't incline towards constructing another birth. Instead, we incline towards the cessation of suffering. And that's because we want the deathless. We want Nibbana. In the meditation, as we said before, if we attain any kind of liberation, so this Vimutti, then we have transcended both form and feeling. So before we come to the end of our session, I just wanted to share this Dhammapada verse. And it's Dhammapada verse number 92. And it's about Venerable Belatissasav Theravattu. This is the story about Belatissasathera. And this is to help us deepen our understanding of this noble Dhamma. So we find the origin story both in the Dhammapada commentary, but also in the Vinaya. So particularly in the Atithya, which contains 92 rules on confession. And it's particularly in this Sanidhi Karaka. Uh, so this is, I think, rule number 38. And it says there, at one time, the Buddha was staying at Savati in Jetha's Guru, Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Belatasisa, uh, he was Venerable Ananda's preceptor, was staying in the wilderness. After walking for alms, he brought plain boiled rice back to the monastery where he dried and stored it. Whenever he got hungry, he moistened it and ate it. As a result, he only went uh, to the village for alms after a very long time. The monks asked him, why do you only go for alms after such a long time? And he told them. And then they asked, but do you eat food that you've stored? And he said, yes. So the monks of very few desires complained and criticized him. And they asked, how? How can Venerable Balatasissa eat food that he has stored? And they reported it to the Buddha, who then asked, Is it true, Balatasissa, that you do this? And he re responded to the Buddha, It's true, sir. And then the Buddha rebuked him, saying, Balatasissa, how can you do this? This will affect people's confidence. And then the Buddha laid down a new training rule, which was, Amongst this training rule should be recited like this. If a monk eats fresh or cooked food that he has stored, he commits an offence entailing confession. So that is how the rule came to be. So it could be said that Belatasissathera did not store food out of greed for food, but he mainly did it to have more time for spiritual practice. 
But the Buddha spoke this verse, and this is the verse in Dhammapada, Yesangsa Nichayonati, those who do not accumulate or hoard. So this is in reference to Arahants, the perfected ones. Ye Parinyata Bojana, have full understanding of food or the nature of food. Sunyato Anamit Anamito Cha, so emptiness, silence, Vimoka Yesangocharo. Liberation is their domain. So emptiness, emptiness, signless, liberation is their domain. Akaseva, sakuntanang, just like birds in the sky, gati tesa, duranaya, whose destination is difficult to follow. So let me just read that uh, translation out again. Those who do not accumulate or hoard have full understanding of food or the true nature of food. Emptiness, signless, liberation is their domain or range, just like birds in the sky whose destination is difficult to follow. What we can see here is the Buddha is referring to Arahant. So those who have perfected the noble path, those who have full understanding or full comprehension of the true nature of food, and so their domain is liberation or emptiness, uh, signless, emptiness or signless liberation. So unless we develop our mind in accordance with what the Buddha is teaching, unless we follow in the footsteps of these noble arahants or the noble Buddha, then it is difficult to follow them to reach this liberation because we are still caught in misapprehending food and also misapprehending the feeling we value, uh, that we value because we associate that with the food. So this verse reflects, I guess you could say, the upper limit of if we were to cultivate and develop the profitable perception of the repulsiveness of food. So when the Buddha refers to full understanding, parinyata, or full comprehension, also translated as thorough knowledge of food, he is referring to the three parinyas. And the first one is nyata parinya, which means full understanding of the known, so by knowledge or experience. In the Mahanidesa, which is attributed to Venerable Sariputta, it explains and says, what is full understanding of the known? So what is this nyata parinya? And it says, one knows craving. So tanha, one knows and sees. This is craving for forms. This is craving for taste. This is craving for sounds. This is craving for odors. This is craving for sensations. And this is craving for mental phenomena. So when we cultivate and develop the perception of repulsiveness of food, we start to understand and know about craving, that it may be primarily craving for taste. But the craving for forms, odors, sounds, sensations, and mental phenomena also kick in as well. And we also start to understand and know our attachment to the feeling associated with the food. The second type of understanding is tirana parinya. So this translates as full understanding by scrutinization or measurement. And again, Mahanidesa explains what is full understanding by scrutinization or measurement? Having known craving in such a way, one scrutinizes it. One scrutinizes it, scrutinizes it as impermanent, suffering as a disease, and so on. And by way of its origins, passing away, its gratification, its danger, and the escape from it. So in our meditation, when we apply these different meditation objects in relation to food, and we penetrate that, when we apply the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, the arising and passing away phenomena, then we start to develop towards this full understanding by scrutinization or measurement. And then the third one is Pahana Parinya, so full understanding by abandoning. And again, Mahanidesa explains, what is full understanding by abandoning? 
But having scrutinized craving in such a way, one abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and eliminates it. So a very strong wording here. As the Blessed One said, bhikkhus abandon desire and lust for craving in such a way that craving will be abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stone, eliminated so that there is no subject, no more subject to future arising. So here, if we have heavily scrutinized, then we lean towards abandoning desire and lust for food. We give up the craving for food, meaning we realize the cessation of suffering. We see the merit of developing and maintaining profitable perception of repulsiveness of food because we've understood the arising and passing away phenomena. And in this way, Nibbana, the deathless, becomes our object and goal. So this verse from the Buddha is encouragement for us to develop and go where it is difficult to follow, which is to follow in the footsteps of the Buddha and also the noble arahants. They are, in fact, our role models. And we must make effort to persist even when this meditation seems difficult, even when we're obstructed from this meditation. It may seem as if we're as if we're taking our pleasure away, taking our happiness away, and that's why we block ourselves from this meditation. But even if we penetrate just a little bit of this noble Dhamma, we will start to see that the supreme happiness that is safe, that is lasting, that is Nibbana, not to be found in food, craving for taste, any attachment to food, to the feeling associated with food, will only keep us bound in samsara and this whole mass of suffering. That's where we've come from. And if we don't cultivate, then we will continue on this endless journey. So we've now come to the end of our session on the third of the seven profitable perceptions. So the perception of repulsiveness of food, ahara patikula sanya in Pali, so let's express gratitude to the Buddha for these powerful teachings. Let's also express gratitude to our other teachers, our parents, our good friends, and those who encourage us on the Noble Eightfold Path. We can now share the merits with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Jam to all of you. Wishing you all well. May you gain what is useful from the Buddha's teachings in our session today. Continue to develop and progress on the Noble Eightfold Path and grow in wholesome quality. Darwan Saranai.